little words, a small question. Are you happy? A harmless question, right? Or is it an earthworm burrowing its way into your brain with a never-ending hunger for a compliant existence that you can't even remember choosing? Hello, and welcome to the Book Club Juxtapositions podcast, a book club where we discuss two pieces of literature and juxtapose them based on theme, plot, author style, societal norms, and basically just how the book grabs you. All of the interesting things that make for a great spoiler-filled book club discussion. Did you say spoiler-filled? Yes, I said spoiler-filled. In each episode, we will mainly focus on one of the literary pieces. With all good literature, one can't help but make comparisons and connections to other literary works and in life. In the second episode, we will examine the same ideas with the counterpiece of literature. This is just a fun way to compare and contrast two pieces of literature and have a lively discussion. This is an adult podcast intended for adult listeners, and we may use adult language. Adult language? What the hell? We want to include you in our discussion, so please go to our Twitter account, at Book Club Justice. That's at B-O-O-K-C-L-U-B-J-U-X-T-A-S. We would love it if you would subscribe and then drop us a review and share the episode wherever you get your podcast. Remember our motto, encourage and inspire, don't spit fire. So grab your glass of wine and let's juxtapose. In this month's episodes, we are examining Change. Change is an epic force in the lives of Guy Montag from Fahrenheit 451 and Count Alexander Rostov from A Gentleman in Moscow. Two very different male protagonists, one very timeless struggle. I'm Tracy May, author, multi-award winning screenwriter and former educator. I'm Kimberly Andy, travel writer, former educator, and creator of the blog Lily Pads of Curiosity. Today's episode, Fahrenheit 451, the classic science fiction dystopia novel by Ray Bradbury. It's the story of Guy Montag, a fireman tasked to burn books and thus critical thinking, who decides to fight back. Change, revolution, renewal, rebirth, enlightenment. We live in a constant state of flux. How a character chooses to face this certainty is the beating heart of any novel. Fahrenheit 451's response is, hell yes, even if it means the destruction of all to rise from the ashes anew. The book's central question, are you happy? I love this question. It just seems so simple on the outside, but it's the, I love the simplicity of it because you can't get to a, a more inherent question that we all should be asking ourselves. Bradbury's lyrical use of paradox implies that technology is killing our souls. Therefore, as he writes, are we alive but dead? Do we live but do not live? This book is about ideas, and I was listening to John Green's uh, Crash Course on Fahrenheit 451, which I absolutely love. His series, if you haven't heard it, is fantastic. We love us some Green Brothers. We do love some Green Brothers. (laughs) I think any novel really should be about ideas, and Fahrenheit 451 is such a quintessential novel about ideas. And to be able to break that down into a small question, are you happy, is crazy powerful and I also love paradox paradox in Orwell's work paradox in Bradbury's work I think that's the time when we really have to stop and think through that paradox and that's when we really let those ideas kind of sink in maybe we'll never find an answer but it's a question we should keep asking I think that we ask that question every single day and it's so impactful to me to think that Fahrenheit 451 is a classic novel and Ray Bradbury had such foresight to be able to come up with um, these ideas and I don't know it seems really silly to think that wow where do you think of that back then (laughs) it's so true that that is a theme that carries forward constantly and it is something that boy you think we'd figure it out by now but 
you know, I think that we just kind of keep digging ourselves into that hole. For example, like, are we living in Fahrenheit 451 now? There is that constant noise. There's that technology, the Bluetooth, a.k.a. that shell radio, that ear radio in Fahrenheit 451. You know, no thought for others, kids killing kids, apathy. Government took advantage of apathy. Yeah, it wasn't the, the whole idea of the censorship in the society they're living in was not the government didn't create that. They took advantage of that. And I think apathy is probably one of the biggest things we struggle with in our society today. Honestly, the narcissism that comes from all of that technology and almost being the star of your own reality program 24-7. But I mean, I'm just as guilty of it because I think about, you know, Mildred, his wife, is obsessed with television and she cares more about the television characters than she does her friends or Guy. And I would tell you, I'm very, very guilty of that. When something, I for years and years and years watching Game of Thrones, thinking if something happens to Tyrion, I'm going to lose my shit. And then you, you think about something like real and maybe not caring as much about something real. <laughs> you were looking at it and the way you look at it is from the writer's perspective and seeing characters develop and getting engrossed into the storyline. I think for her, it was an alternative universe. She felt like she was there. So, for example, if you thought that you actually lived in the Game of Thrones and were rolling around naked in... Let's shake that off. That's not a good visual. Shake that off right now. Shame. Shame. So, so you're guilty of it in a completely different way. I think the way I read Fahrenheit 451 is she was so engrossed in this, it became her reality. But that's the connection, is social media, especially with teenagers... And I can't even blame it on teenagers now. I see this in everybody, everywhere you go. Everybody has their phone out. You get on an airplane and everybody's on their phone. They don't talk to the person next to them. They're so engrossed in it. And they're just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And the time that they spend on one picture is minute. And that thought process or learning and picking up things from other people around them, it's just non-existent. That's sad, though. And I do. I see it, too. And it, it always makes me sad every single time. But the constant having to take in information, and I'll say it again, I'm just as guilty because I like the noise. So I'm always having my phone. I'm always listening to podcasts, always taking in information, audiobooks, etc. I'm afraid of the silence in a sense. I've trained myself to be afraid of that silence. I think Mildred thought that those, everybody on the, the TV... Well, and they set it up that way. They took advantage of them that way. But the um, the government had it set up to where they would literally put in pauses on the TV screen after they asked a question so that the viewer would answer those questions. And then they felt like the character was literally talking to them because it was so rote. It was so automatic and robotic that... Um, but you don't sit back and wait for the characters to respond to you. Yes, I do love you, Jon Snow. Thank you for asking. <laughs> okay, so now I know why you don't answer the phone sometimes. <laughs> All right, so Guy, Guy Montague, our protagonist, exists in a cold, technology-driven world where society paradoxically lives but does not live. He spends his days as a fireman setting fires to books and his nights with his desperately unhappy and suicidal wife. Subconsciously, this is a man ready for change. Guy just needs subconsciously. A <laughs> is it not the right word? No, it's true. But wouldn't you just like if you were living with this desperately unhappy and suicidal wife, you would be subconscious about it, right? You'd be like, ah. <laughs> but does he even know to ask? No. Again, going not. back to that question, 
would he even ask himself, is he happy? Does he even know what happiness is? You know, and that's a great point because when he's asked that question later, it puts him on a different axis. You know, it, it rocks his world. Totally, totally changes his path. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That was great. I'm thinking, no, that wouldn't be subconscious for me at all. It would be screaming down the street. All he needed was a little push. And he's, we've seen those little hints where he had interactions with Faber. And, you know, so when he meets Clarice, I think it's just the right time. He's ready. The Count and a gentleman in Moscow had Nina. Guy Montague has Clarice. And Clarice is such an impetus for change. She's uh, Clarice McCullen. She's a 17-year-old free thinker. Gotta love that. Bradbury describes her in words typically used to describe nature, which is another thing I absolutely love the way he put in there and the way Ray Bradbury describes things. Some people I've heard think that Ray Bradbury spends too much time describing something. <laughs> Nobody at this table. Nope, wasn't trying to call you. No names, no names. <laughs> but I think that the amount of time that he spends describing something really draws you in, and that's why we don't we, we still remember it. That's why it hasn't been forgotten. In Guy's society, she is the walking, talking embodiment of one of these things is not like the other. She enjoys rain, dandelions, autumn leaves. All those things. Think about that book that we talked about last week. There Will Come Soft Rains by Barry Bradbury. He beautifully uses her to contrast her in the dystopian world of violence, narcissism, and technology that Guy inhibits. So a walking, talking paradox in a sense for that community. Literally. So what happens to Guy then with no Clarice? He's already been hiding books. We know this. Without her, does he, does he change? Is it was she just a small push that was needed? Well, there was one thing that I, you know, came across to me was this connection between the novels um, using suicide. And what Guy also attempted suicide, I think that at one point we were talking about would he have changed on his own since he was already hiding books? And would he have changed on his own without ever of meeting Clarice? It makes me makes me question that and that the thought came to mind about about the attempted suicide, like, would he have attempted suicide as well? Because, well, that's... Kind of what was the norm in their society. Kind of, Their status yeah. quo and their norm was it, to do that. His wife did that. I mean, it was so normal for their society that they had a robotic dog that would come in. The and, snake would clean him out. Or the snake would come in and clean him out. Not the dog, the snake. And the Count without Nina and Sophia. Think about... The Count without Nina and Sophia, and that they went, he went to the rooftop with the intent of ending it all. And that's when the, the, I believe it was the janitor, talks to him and he reflects. Without Clarice, would Guy have given up? I don't know. These tiny nudges, when we recognize them, completely propel us in a different direction. And I think that's what I love about these books is that they open up the window. The ideas. Yeah, to recognizing tiny nudges. And you don't get those nudges if you're staring at your phone. And you're not... You're not open to listening. Yeah. All right, so the old woman, I think she's kind of underrated in this whole discussion because the old woman was willing to sacrifice her life for the books that she was hiding. And again, suicide theme going right That's absolutely there. going back to that. To see that, to see a woman who's willing to die for her books, for her ideas, is that more impactful than a teenager? Like, oh, are you happy? I, yeah, I, I would imagine that the old woman burning her books well, here's is pretty powerful too. Here's a question for you. What if in the story, the old woman was not an old woman? What if it was a young woman? I had read actually that Clarice, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I had read that Clarice is actually Ray Bradbury as a young man. 
and that Ray Bradbury is actually having a conversation with himself, his younger self, to his older self asking, are you happy? You know what? I think I do remember seeing that in an interview with Ray Bradbury where he had his cat on his lap and stuff. I think he did bring that up. (laughs) That's funny. So how does this contrast impact his relationship with Mildred? I just think it's a really very clear contrast that he's able to see what life could be versus what life is. And all of the, you know, all of the women in his life, seeing those two things, and truthfully, all of the minor characters, which kind of brings me to a point, thinking about our two characters, the Count in The Gentleman in Moscow and Guy in Fahrenheit, basically, I think the Count is a much nicer man because it seems to me like Guy is willing to use people to create this change. He's, he doesn't really seem to, I, I know it, I know he's not supposed to care about Mildred because that's the point, right. but honestly, he really doesn't seem to care about Mildred at all. As a matter of fact, he's willing to kind of torpedo their whole relationship when she has the party. Basically, he's willing to read poetry and disrupt this whole party, knowing that that is going to send her on a complete another meltdown versus the Count who actually cares about people and cares about his relationships. You're right. I think because the Count didn't have any other things that weren't centrally focused, meaning everything that he did was for himself. And Guy had to go out there and work his job and do things that he was being told to do from others, and then he was trying to make those choices. Do I comply and be like Mildred and sit at home and just have my brain literally taken over? Or... Do I resist and let myself get burned down? Well, neither one of those options seem to be (laughs) something that, you know, were top on his wish list. So meeting Clarice was that out for him. And he was very open to being able to grab it, open and willing to able to hear that message that she was bringing. And I think that was very impactful and important. All right. Well, how do you think this fits into it all? Because one of the quotes that I found really impactful in the book was a quote that says, I hate a Roman named status quo. So is that the opposite of the count then to you? Do you think the count masters the status quo, the master of his circumstances, versus Guy who's willing to kind of go with it when his whole society is crumbled to the ground, let the phoenix rise from the ashes? Well, I think that, you know, wow, that's a great question because I'm thinking of the two different characters and what they were up against. And the count... He lived this noble life and he lived in this great fancy hotel and then he was imprisoned into this hotel. His quote that I that I mentioned last week was that, you know, if he didn't go along with the change that that was going to be the recipe for madness, basically. I don't the mastering his circumstances would be the direct route to madness or I so I think that that's different than Or wondering if it would be different. Right. Wondering if it would be different is that the direct route to madness. Right. You know, imagining any other way. So I think that, you know, him maintaining a status quo, even though he changed his course for his status quo, he tried to keep things as status quo as possible. <laughs> okay. If yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Cling to it. Um, it's safe. It's safe. It's safe. Right. Mm-hmm. So he, he's still in the hotel. He gets moved out of his cushy room, but he still tries to live every single minute of his life as a, yeah, that's okay. I chose this. I'm a minimalist now, <laughs> and I wanted this. Whereas Guy, he's looking at it as, look, if I don't, you know, I don't like running into a brick wall and everything that you're doing in your life. That's not status quo. That's your everything internally is fighting that. 
And I think the count got to the point where he wasn't fighting it because he was able to keep some things very consistent that he was really And okay he had with. love. And he had love. And he had love. And I don't think Guy had love until he found Clarice and not love but in really, a, does he love her? I think that he finds... He finds something about her to love and care deeply about. I don't think that it was love like romantic love or crush love. I mean, I think or it was a father different. figure love. Yeah, I don't even think that there is necessarily a connection as a relationship in specific terms. I'm thinking you just meet somebody that you just really admire what they're doing and the message that they're bringing to you and you love that about them. You love that energy that you're getting from them. So that's the kind of love I'm talking about where that was something that was positive and felt good to him so he was able to grasp onto that and then use that as a force to pull him into a different direction. And that did. That opened up all sorts of other Things that he hadn't even considered or thought of before. Does it just make the Count more intelligent? Is the Count inherently more intelligent? I think that the Count's more intelligent in the, the realm that the Count has more... Well, the Count spends more time reading. The Count spends more time thinking about things other than the situation that he's in. You know, he studies the outside world. He studies other people. He's very intelligent and knowledgeable about those kinds of things. And he comes across just... More worldly, whereas Guy was just burn. Yes. Except burn, burn, get up, burn. Smell the gas. Smell the gas. Come home, smell like gas, burn. Just like living that robotic environment. And being told what to do all the time. So I think that that's big time different. I think that, you know, uh, the Count had that opportunity to learn, and I think Guy had an inner desire to learn, and that's why he wanted to be able to get out and not lose the opportunity for the one way that he knew that he could learn things that um, were being kept from him, and that was the books. So did you find the end of Fahrenheit 451 a hopeful novel? Because the end really does end in this kind of beautiful, hopeful, everything is being destroyed. Again, going back to that fight club, you got to burn it all down so they can rise from the ashes. Is the ending hopeful to you? I think that the ending is, yeah, you know, I I hadn't thought of it in that that realm before, but I'm picturing all the people sitting in that community and they're sharing the pieces that they memorized of a book, which, by the way, which book would you memorize? If I had to choose just one, which one would I choose to memorize or choose parts of to memorize? And I can't, I can't think of one. 1984 is a corner. It's the probably, in my opinion, the most impactful book of the 20th century, 1984. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could go on and on about, you know, important books. Uh, 1984 completely, utterly, fundamentally changed how I view the world. Oh, wow. So I would have to go with that. I think that the, I get that feeling from so many different books that I couldn't pinpoint it to just one. There's parts of so many books that I would say, yeah, I'd want to have that or I'd want to have this piece. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous that you can pin it down, <laughs> <laughs> that you can pin it down to one. But it'd be uh, long. But I'm a good memorizer. That, that got me through a lot of math and language. See, I'm not. I still make up words to songs. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask, guy, does he use people? Is he a nice person? And does that matter? Because, you know, I know we just talked about that the Count is a good person. What do you think there? Like, do you think that the Count was a good person? Or do you think Guy used Yeah, people? I think the Count, and maybe that is my, going back to our key takeaway, is that maybe I ended up liking the Count more and thinking that Guy was a little bit more of a jerk than I originally went into these two novels thinking. So maybe my opinion of these two you know, protagonist flip-flopped, was that the Count did things out of love, where a guy did things, I think of almost, in a way, 
a Darwinian approach that he knew he needed to survive and the world was not a survivable situation. So emotionally, he did what he needed to do to survive. Even when he's running from the police at that point and they find a scapegoat. I mean, he didn't mastermind that, but he certainly took advantage of the scapegoat, letting the scapegoat go down. So Guy does use people. Guy in uses your opinion. people. Yeah. So that's, if I were to ask you then what your takeaway after reading these novels, or more specifically after juxtaposing these two novels. I would tell you that I ended up liking the Count more for his willingness to sacrifice for other people and to be that emotional core for other people. But to be fair to Guy, he lived in a very much more perilous environment. Even though Guy was living inside the walls of the Great Purge, he wasn't affected by it, really, Yeah, I other feel, than not being able to leave. I feel so excited right now because I know when, um, when we first decided to read The Gentleman of Moscow... I absolutely fell in love with the book and fell in love with the Count. Like, I wanted him to be my uncle that I could go sit and have dinner with. And I wanted to give him a call and say, hey, let's meet up at the hotel and have a chat over some tea. And I felt just instantly connected with this character and thought he was just brilliant and awesome. And when I first mentioned him to you, you are like, the Count's a jerk. <laughs> I couldn't help it to think like, okay, well, Stalin's killing people. Right, Why right. And then that gave no, me. Nothing to see there. If I were to take away, you know, after juxtaposing these, that really brought a different light to me out because I never, it made me kind of worried about myself. Like, man, I'm a jerk too because I didn't pay attention to what's going on <laughs> in, outside of those hotel walls. I was just so entranced with the count in the way that um that Amor Tolls portrays him and portrays what's going on inside that situation and like you said his his whole purpose wasn't to write about Stalin and what was going on outside in Russia I mean they 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 hint on those things of what's going on but at the same time I just really fell in love with the count and his love for learning and exploring and being who the count is and for us to be able to flip-flop those understandings and um no, I, don't. I still don't think the Count's a jerk. And it makes me <laughs> so happy to know that you seeing him in a different light. That's what this is all about. This is why it's so cool to take two novels and have two characters that are faced with kind of similar things and be able to juxtapose them and really come out with a bigger, broader meaning that neither one of these authors really ever knew that they were doing. We want to hear from you and what your thought is on that. So what what is your takeaway, readers, after reading these two novels, or more specifically, after listening with us and juxtaposing these two novels, what do you think? We'd love you to go to our Twitter account, at Book Club Juxtas, where we hope to engage in a lively discussion with you all online and love to share some of those highlights in our next episode. And if you don't have Twitter, we also have the Facebook account, and it's Book Club Juxtas and come to our Facebook page and we can have that discussion on Facebook page there too and then we'll bring up these highlights in our next episode. Okay, and thinking about our next episode, we want you to think about what makes a person successful. What makes someone a master at their skill? Then read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell if you haven't already and be enlightened with a refreshing and bold approach to our long-held narratives about success. Data analysis has never been so riveting. Our next episode... Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And let me tell you, we love us some Malcolm Gladwell. Absolutely. So our next books, 
We've taken The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, and we are going to juxtapose that with The Great Gatsby. Oh, that would have been a good book for me to memorize, too. I love The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby? I read, I've read that over and over and over again. All right, that's that my book. challenge to you. By our next episode, you are going to regurgitate back to us the entire <laughs> book from memorization. And then after you're old done... Old sport. I'm just going to keep saying old sport. <laughs> then after that, we're going to examine the theme of fate versus free will. Once you pick up these two books, you're going to see where we're going with that. We're going to have a great discussion. Can't wait to dig into that. And these episodes will be posted uh, for The Outliers. It'll be December 23rd. And for The Great Gatsby, it'll be January 13th. So thank you so much for spending your time with us. Ciao, Ciao, Bellos. Bellos.